Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now, on to my episode with Susan Rogers. Again, I'm thinking, you know, an engineer is going to walk in the door any minute and, and I'm going to have some explaining to do. So finally, I got up the courage to just ask him, who's going to engineer it? And he just said, you, you, you. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast. A podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Today's Silent Giant is Susan Rogers, the Grammy Award-winning engineer behind Prince's classic album, Purple Rain. In this episode, Susan chats about her early childhood how her career started as an engineer, meeting Prince for the first time, the making of one of my favorite albums, Purple Rain, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Grammy Award-winning engineer, producer, professor, my friend, the silent giant, Susan Rogers. Hello, one, two. Hello, three, four. There we go. One, two, one, two, one, two. We're ready to rock and roll. I am. <laughs> Susan, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? You know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm fresh off the Chinatown bus from New York City to, uh, here in Boston today. So I'm, I'm in great spirits to see you. It's great to see you. You've been on Chinatown bus before? Yeah, I took it once. Once? When was this? Oh, years ago. It was a, I, I, I didn't enjoy it as much. I like to drive. And yeah, uh, yeah, no one enjoys it as much. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, some people, they like it because they can have their laptop open and they got the phone or whatever and they don't have to drive. I'd much rather drive. I would much rather drive. But you know what it is? The Chinatown bus is always an experience. Every time I get on one, there's a situation. <laughs> you know, it's always a story. <laughs> I didn't see a situation. I remember hearing conversations. I think I just kind of blocked everything out. Oh, see. Make it all go away until I get to New York. That was, that was, see, that's the magic, though. The magic was that conversation that was being had. So, like, I get on the bus today and I was speaking to a chaplain. 
And I didn't know she was a chaplain. Uh, you know, I actually don't even know what a chaplain really does. I think they're mm. non-denominational, right? Isn't well, she's that? Catholic. Okay. She's Catholic. And then she's a chaplain at a hospital. And she was coming to Boston for like a, a, like a religious convention. It's type of like religious I convention. I see. Oh. Oh. You know the person I was just meeting with, having coffee with? Uh, his wife is here for that exact same thing. His uh, wife has a master's degree in theology. And, and, and he was saying there's some convention yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big huh. deal. She showed me the handbook. And it's like four, like, like it was like a Bible. Oh, wow. It was, it was a Bible. It was like a lot of stuff. It's a, it was a really big deal. She was super excited about it. I was excited for her. Oh, nice. So it, I guess a chaplain's job in the army or in the hospital or wherever they are is to provide kind of counseling services or religious sort of services to everyone. Right, right. I mean, yeah. and it could be a person who's, you know, who's, I think, dying mm. or a person whose family member is going through something, but just like religious counsel. I see. I don't know. I'm I'm a bad religious person. I don't know. I should I, I should know more. I was raised Catholic when, and I know that men. I'm not a practicing Catholic. I know that only men can be priests right now. Right. You are such a born journalist. Me? You're so. You just have the right natural profile for this. Oh, thanks. That's, I think that's, you, that's really I, nice I, of you. I think you could do really well in this business. I hope you. I hope you keep pushing forward. You've got that instinct to recognize. I guess that's the same instinct a writer has, that there's someone next to me and this is a source of information and this person's experience is foreign to me. It's something I don't know. I want to find out about this. Oh, I want I, to find out what this is like. That I think people are the greatest professors. Uh, it's just the person on the street that's different than you. Mm-hmm. Just stop and ask them about their day. I, I was talking to someone about police brutality and like Black Lives Matter. And I was like, man, honestly, I feel like the police officers kind of get a bad rap, Right. Because I, I think it's more colorful than mm. what we see it as. It's hard for me to, how can I relate to your life if I'm just me? I, I'm not going through your experience. I think we do that too often with celebrities. Like, how could they do such a thing? And it's mm. like, well, they're having a whole different level of pressure yeah. than what we're experiencing. So you can't compare your life to that person. Exactly. So I, I spoke to a, a cop in New York City and I was like, hey man, can I ask you a couple questions? What's like the worst thing you've ever seen? At first it was almost like kind of rude. Of like, yeah, why are you asking me this? Like, like, and I was like, I'm just so, I'm just very curious. Like, you know, would you mind explaining like what the, what the worst thing is? And he goes in his phone and he pulls out, uh, goes in his photos and pulls out pictures, and they're pictures of like dead people. Oh, like, and there's like a you know two a father and a son shot in the head. Oh no, very graphic images. And I'm and here I am. I'm just in like in shock that one he has pictures, and I'm just taken aback. Like, wow, oh my, like, oh my goodness. I almost oh. felt bad even asking. But the way he's going about it is very um, routine. Mm. It's very routine to him. And I was like, well, he's, he's become numb to like, certain things. Yeah. It, life's not a broad paintbrush. It's very yeah. colorful. And you just have to pull back that, peel back that onion to yeah. understand why things are the way they are. And, yeah, and you recognize that that is a survival tactic that that man had to become numb in order to survive he would never last in his profession if he weren't numb exactly and that numbness is um it's required yeah and and think of what it must do to you if you've been numb for decades like imagine if you're a, a police officer in your 50s or 60s and you haven't really felt any horror for 40 years because you can't yeah what would your outlook be? I don't know. 
but we have we have to do a better job of asking people. Everyone should be a journalist. Yeah, like, and I'm, I, I wouldn't even say I'm a journalist. I say like, I'm a rapper who has to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I haven't heard your music, but I, I think you're uh, you're naturally the profile of a great journalist and writer. Oh, thank you. I think you. I think you're that instinct is what makes a person a good writer. That. Do you ever read any David Sedaris? No. Oh, he's just I, I so like, funny. I but, feel like you're going to put me onto a lot of things. Well, his his diaries, his most recent book is his diaries. He's been keeping a diary from, uh, well, his, since 1977, so for 40 years, I think it is. Anyway, he released the first volume of it, his diary entries from 77 to 2000. And it's he thinks along the same lines as you do. He observes things, and uh, he always seems to find himself, because he's so observant, observing unusual things that uh, that you wouldn't notice unless you really looked and it's so entertaining his his diary entries are, are brilliant but you see the value of documenting the everyday world around you speaking of of you know uh, uh, you know I grew up wanting to be a journalist that's the first thing I wanted to be what did you want to be starting out in your in your life well, I remember having, I was eight years old and I got it as a birthday present. It was a Sonny and Cher record. And I wasn't, I don't remember the record, but I remember the back of the album. So on the back of the album, there were black and white photographs of Sonny and Cher and the musicians and the studio. And I remember that there was a picture of the engineer and of the studio. And I remember staring at that. You know how little kids will just stare at the back of a cereal box or if you've got you know, some pattern on your bedspread or your curtains or whatever, you just, you know how little kids are. They just get in that trance and they just stare. I, I remember staring at that. And uh, I think I felt a little bit of the resonant frequency that's down inside all of us. And that resonant frequency matched with the, with the frequency of people who do audio technical work and serve the record-making industry. I felt no affinity to be a musician myself or to be a songwriter or performer, zero. Like, that was a different street. But it kind of felt like when I was eight years old, the street I live on is going to be... It's going to involve the entertainment industry, and it would probably be in some service aspect in that industry. Wow. And so you knew this early on. Yeah. Wow, that's remarkable. I mean, that, I think that plays a big role in, in, in your life today. Because you, know, you got a head start as a, as a child, as mentally putting yourself in that space. Yeah, that's one of the things I like to talk to my students about. You know, that, that a career isn't something you walk out into the world and go looking for, and you don't pluck a career off a tree like, like fruit. Mm. You just don't do that. Your career is the tree that's growing inside you. You don't look outward for a career. You look inward. So what you want to do is look inside and see who you naturally are. All of our brains are slightly different. Some of us are more verbal. Some of us are more visual. Some people are more analytical. Some people uh, are, are, are more social. And some people are more competitive. So you look inside you at what your natural strength is and what your brain wants to be doing and the answer to that the way you find that out is by your fantasies your daydreams your daydreams will tell you who you are that's all you have to do so in the modern world if a human being is fed and sheltered so you don't have to worry about eating and you don't have to worry about bombs falling on you you're safe and let's say you just got your work done for the day you did everything you're supposed to do you made the bed you went to your job you went to school you got that done what does your brain do 
when it can do whatever it wants, when it has leisure time. What does it do? So people don't do enough of that. We're always looking at our phones or we're looking at the TV or something. But little kids, when they have the opportunity to just sit and daydream, those fantasies are informative. They're going to tell you who you are. Is it going to the football field? Is it going to the library? Is it imagining that you're a superhero? Is it imagining that you're a, a rock star? What are your fantasies telling you? And my fantasies involved, loosely I should say, involved um, the music. It involved music in some capacity. The main thing I was interested in. So that's what you want to do, I think, is you want to see if you can get your body to do what your brain is already doing. Exactly. Uh, did you grow up in a musical household? No, no. My parents, um, Irish is the nationality, the original nationality, and so they, they loved music. They had not very good taste in music. My mother would play, you know, show tunes or, you know, just kind of, yeah, not kind of boring music. My dad liked rock. He liked rock his whole life, and he, he would play rock music. But I grew up in Southern California. So in Southern California in the 60s, we were really fortunate because it was a highly populated area, which meant that we had a lot of radio stations to choose from. So kids who grew up in North Dakota or maybe some remote parts of Montana, they would maybe only get one station. But if you grew up in Southern California, especially in the days when AM radio would play anything, from Sly Stone to Motown to Bobby Sherman, you know, just a a variety of music. You get to hear everything. So uh, listening to the radio, I think, was that was my vein for music. That's the vein that I tapped. What were you like in school? I was a good student. I got good grades. You strike me as a good student. Yeah. Here we are at Berkeley. <laughs> Fine institution uh, did, of higher learning. I did well. I did pretty well. I was um, socially, I, I was shy and um, I preferred then and I prefer now too. Um, I like isolation. I'm a, I'm a real introvert and introverts get recharged from being alone. Extroverts typically get recharged from being with people. Now, people misunderstand about introverts. It doesn't mean that they don't like people. I have the deepest love for people, love and admiration and affection for people. Um, But I need a lot of alone time to feel uh, inspired and rejuvenated. And I was that way. That's in our genes. You know, I was that way since childhood. And where did did you get your first kind of opportunity to get kind of inside of the music industry, you know, coming out of, you know, you don't come from a musical family. So like, where did that that transition happen in your life where you got your first kind of feet wet in, in the the music space? It was driven by, um, it was driven by a high pressure situation. It was driven, which itself was driven by desire. Uh, Getting into music was an escape. So when I was young, um, my mother, a wonderful woman, was very sick. She suffered with, with cancer for many, many years, and she fought the brave fight, but she finally succumbed and died when I was 14 years old, and I have younger brothers. So um, in my childhood, it was rough because my dad was working three jobs, and I was doing... From the age of about 11, I was responsible for putting dinner on the table and getting the school uniforms washed and ironed and getting the beds made and just all that kind of stuff. So that's the initial pressure cooker. 
that builds up pressure in a child when you have to take on those adult responsibilities very early. Then one way of, of getting out and starting a life on my own was um, the avenue of getting married, which I made a terrible mistake, and I got married when I was 17. My dad had remarried, so the younger brothers were taken care of, and I got married when I was 17, and that was a mistake because the person I was married to ended up being um, physically abusive. He used to beat me up. So fortunately for me, uh, we never had children, thank goodness, because after four years of that, uh, at this point I'm now 21 years old and I'm ready to make my escape. So the pressure of um, a childhood that was warm and loving and, and affectionate, but coupled with trauma in, in the sense of you know losing a parent and just having to take on these adult responsibilities, school was just aborted. So school could not be finished. I dropped out of high school when I got married. And then getting uh, going from home to husband and being in this situation where like, oh my God, this guy, you know, he was so jealous and possessive. He used to punch me in the face. And I wear glasses. Who punches a woman in the face? Especially a woman who wears glasses. <laughs> I mean, you know. The, the glasses like uh, take over the top. Yeah, that's <laughs> adding insult to injury. Because, like, yeah, now you broke my glasses. And there was no Warby Parker back in the day. So these are expensive <laughs> premium dollar frames. Come on, man. Yeah, that, that was awful. But I have come to see bad things. Uh, you know, you can look at it in a different light because everything influences you. And if I had been married to a good man, I never would have gotten out. If I had married a really good man and had children, I'd have a very different life. And that would be great. You know, who, who doesn't want to be married to a good person? But it was because I was married to a horrible person. I could get out guilt-free. I can get out without ever looking back. Mm. So that ended up actually being an advantage because 17 is too young to be married. So when I got out, this is a long-winded answer to your question, but at 21... Um, the pressure of that home environment had pulled the slingshot back so far that my career was launched. Because if you're escaping something and you reach escape velocity, mm. you're not looking back. Mm. You're only going forward. That's the rocket fuel. Yeah, and, and I think uh, my, my former boss, Prince, had the same, a similar situation. When the, when the home life is difficult and you manage to achieve that escape velocity, you're going to keep going a long way. And that's exactly what I did. I had a roommate, and uh, she, she was a co-worker, and we said, let's move next door from Anaheim, California to Hollywood. Let's start a career as recording engineers. And she lasted about a week. <laughs> she turned out she hated it. Uh, she hated it because she wore dresses and high heels, and she'd have to get down on her knees to align the tape machine. And yeah. she, she was from the South, and she would say, I can't do that. I'm a lady. I wear dresses. <laughs> but I wore jeans, and I could align the tape machine. And so I, I studied, and I worked my ass off, and got an entry-level job as an audio trainee with a company called Audio Industries right in the heart of Hollywood. And they trained me. They saw my enthusiasm. They saw my ambition. Uh, they saw my willingness to work day and night. And they, um, I, I exchanged that for an opportunity to become a young tech. So while you, were, while you were married and even in school, you weren't dabbling at all in the engineering um, the, No, the person I was married to was so jealous that he wouldn't even listen. He didn't even wouldn't let me choose the, what records I listened to. I remember um, uh, wanting 
to listen to certain artists and uh, he, he was really, he was horrible. He was really jealous and very controlling. So what that does to a young person or an old person, what it does to anybody, is uh, when you find yourself being controlled, you look for ways to escape. And one of the most effective ways to escape is, of course, your imagination. So I used to listen to the radio and I used to dream about the day that I could escape and I could, I could... Uh, work somehow in music I couldn't really see it I didn't know I didn't know any bands I didn't know any artists I didn't know any engineers or producers I didn't really know what those people even did engineers or producers I just knew that there were people who facilitated records getting made and that I wanted to be in that environment and I thought I will exchange whatever I can do for the opportunity to be in that environment so now the challenge is what can I do? Well, what do they need done? And um, I heard a sentence early in my career that changed my life. I was um, the very first job I had in the industry was as the receptionist in a little school that very grandly called itself the University of Sound Arts. It wasn't a university; it was a room. <laughs> <laughs> it was a room in Hollywood, but uh, it was founded by this guy who would hire these freelance engineers and mixers and producers to come in and, and in exchange for a little bit of money teach people, here's what an engineer does. I could not afford to go to that school. I think the tuition was $3,000, but um, I got a job. My roommate got me a job as the night receptionist. She was sleeping with the guy, so... <laughs> and she, she was the plug. Yeah, she, 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 <laughs> she slept with everybody, so she got, she got me that job. And, and then I overheard a teacher tell a student, you know, if you always want to work in this business, become a maintenance tech, and you'll always have a job. And that's when I learned a maintenance tech is a person who repairs the equipment. Okay. So I thought, okay, then that's what I'm doing. Oh, I learned, wow. I figured out what that was, and I bought the electric, well, I, I got the electronics manuals. I studied electronics and uh, began a course of self-directed study to get myself um, into an entry-level position. Did you adjust well to Los Angeles and making friends? And how was that personal adjustment for you? The personal adjustment involved coming up with a coping mechanism. Uh, I, I hate to start with um, this interview with, you know, trauma and bad things, but <laughs> fortunately for me, I got all that trauma and all these the horrible incidents, including a, a home invasion, a break-in. All that happened to me before my 22nd birthday, like three like, major traumas, losing a parent, um, ha being beat up by a spouse and being assaulted in Hollywood, all that happened before the age of 22. So I got all that bad shit in my life out of the way. Yeah. And in order to start my career and have a life, I had to decide what my identity was. I had to decide if it was going to be victim or if it was going to be survivor or if it was going to be someone who... Uh, or if those things just simply weren't going to matter. And I, I, I remember at that age walking around Hollywood in the early morning hours and deciding, there's just no way. There's just no way I'm going to let what's been done to me define me. I'm going to be defined by what I do, what I do to others. That's the only... That's the only criterion I have to meet, is to be a person who does well by others. Along the road in this life, um, people will hurt us. That's, I mean, that's possible. That's what they'll do. We can expect it. Won't happen all the time. Won't happen most of the time. But it happens sometimes. I'll be damned 
if my precious life is going to be ruined by the decision that someone else made. I'd rather it be ruined by the decisions I make. Right. So that's when I decided uh, I'm, I'm looking out for myself. I'm getting to have the life that my mother didn't have. She had an unhealthy body. So mm, poor woman, was she died when she was 50 years old. And I remember thinking, I've got a healthy body. I've got a good mind. I'm going to go have some fun with it. I'm going to have a good life because it's a good thing to have. It's a healthy body. And, and once, I, once I figured that out, it didn't take that long. It was kind of all systems go. Let's just have, let's have fun and let's be happy and let's trust men and love them and let's work with them and let's have a good time and don't be defined by, by rough stuff. And that's how it's been ever since. Uh, what, was it, what was the scene like in L.A. at that time? Uh, like musically, it was it was an interesting period. So in 1978, we're just entering the era of um, punk has now transitioned into new wave. So now there's a way in which punk can be kind of popular, and that includes Talking Heads and uh, Blondie and mm-hmm. the Cars and bands like that. They are beginning to dominate the pop charts, and they look different. They wear the skinny ties. They have the short hair. They look different from the rock bands of the era. So there was a little bit of fear in Hollywood uh, that the folks who had been making all this money, the Eagles and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and those guys, that they were going to be, they're not going to be popular much longer. And this always happens in the arts. It always happens in popular music. One trend dies and another trend takes over yeah. so it was 1978 was right at the cusp of that transition and by 1980 we were all kind of afraid of 1984 and oh it's going to be big brother and new technology and what's going to happen we had a new president in office mm-hmm. we had ronald reagan and now the standard of beauty the standard of excellence the aesthetic has changed so now with this Republican president in office, the popular shows of the day were Dallas and Dynasty. Mm. People wanted money, and they wanted expensive clothes, and they wanted to live a different lifestyle that was more conservative and, frankly, wealthier than the uh, ethic, uh, uh, the value system of the 70s. So it was, it was a transitional period, and it was really exciting. For young people, it was really exciting because we felt like now's our time. Now our music is coming up. Now's our time. And there will be, um, people will listen to us because we represent a new generation of music. So you were at the University of Sound Arts, right? Mm. And what was your first opportunity? Because you were doing, you were a secretary. Mm -hmm. Then you were doing maintenance. What was that next step for you in your career uh, as far as, you know, for work? Yeah, so I was only at University of Sound Arts for a short while. I saw an ad in the L.A. Times in the Help Wanted section that said audio trainee wanted. And it was this company, Audio Industries, and I interviewed with them. And I had no prior experience, but they saw that I was working really hard, and so they hired me. And one of the first things they did was they taught me to solder, and they, uh, they, I supplemented the studying that I was doing on my own of electronics and modern recording techniques, things like that, acoustics, uh, I supplemented that with what they taught me on the job. So I soon found myself going to area studios in Los Angeles uh, with a crew of about three or four guys, and we would install studios, and I would um, eventually I was repairing tape machines and repairing consoles, which got me the opportunity to get my next job, which was with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They had a studio just up the street on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Their equipment was breaking down a lot. They wanted a full-time technician. They 
off, made me the offer and I accepted it. You give me the story behind that. That's a big opportunity. Yeah. Like, how do they find you to, to do that? I had been, uh, their studio was one of our regulars, so they'd call, as, as all the clients in Los Angeles would do. MCI was a very popular brand of consoles and tape machines. There were a lot of them in the greater L.A. area. So clients would call, and they'd say, well, my console's acting up, my tape machine's act- acting up, and they'd schedule a service technician. And often that would be me. It was myself and three other guys who were doing the, the tech work. So I would go out there, and I'd repair whatever needed to be repaired. And sometimes the owner of the studio would say to you, you know, you're out here a lot. We could really use a full-time technician. I think they asked me a couple of times before I finally said, yeah, I'll do this. I was learning so much on the job, and it was so great to be at Audio Industries, but I knew that um, I had other ambitions. I didn't want to be a tech my whole life. I really honestly didn't think of myself being an engineer or producer. I mean, that just seemed like too high of a of a, of a of a bar standard. Yes, yeah. or, or not just too high of a standard, but it just seemed like an impossible dream. I suppose if anybody had asked me, could you do it, I would have said, hell yeah. But it just seemed like no one would ever give me the opportunity. But they asked me to join their studio, and I saw there might be an opportunity for me here. So I went to work for them. It was it was very, very small. It's a one-room studio. There was a receptionist, and uh, there was an assistant engineer, and me, we were and a studio manager. But we saw a lot of the uh, clients who were... The, who represented the L.A. rock scene, including Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and, mm. and folks like that, and members of the Eagles, uh, who, who were on that L.A. rock scene in L.A. in the early 80s. That had to be an unbelievable experience. Did you feel at that point a little bit like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm kind of living my dream a little bit. This is, this is pretty cool. I, it, I was still too new to it to feel like I was living my dream. So this is still within the first five years. So I started in 1978. But um, while I was working for Crosby, Stills & Nash, I, uh, had, I was then and I had been for the longest time a Prince fan. Uh, the music that I preferred to listen to was R&B and soul music. In Los Angeles, there were two popular radio stations. One was KACE, and your older listeners from L.A. will remember that, KACE and KJLH, which was owned by Stevie Wonder. Through those stations, I had the opportunity to hear Soft and Wet when that first came out, and I, I'll never forget it. I just remember the feeling of whoever this artist is, this is my artist. Like yeah. Just that feeling of now that's what I'm talking about. You know that feeling you get when you hear a new artist and you recognize, now that's, that's the music of me. And uh, so I, I became a fan of Prince. And, and I remember when the Dirty Mind record came out, my mind was just utterly blown. That's when he he bumped up into my top 10 with that Dirty Mind record. So as I was working for Crosby, Stills & Nash, I had seen Prince play live a couple of times. I had a poster of Prince from the Controversy album in my, in my maintenance shop where I would repair equipment, you know, on the bench there. And um, I remember I had my poster of Prince, and it was from the Controversy record, so he's holding that Honer copy mm-hmm. guitar. Yeah. And the Telecaster copy, and he was wearing, you know, the bikini underwear, and I think he had a leopard print something or other, maybe it was a guitar strap or a neckerchief around his neck, whatever it was. He just was amazing, right? So I had this poster up, and that's when David Crosby 
at that time was addicted to freebase. And mm. Crosby used to come back into my shop, into the maintenance shop, and he would light up his freebase pipe. And after he got high, he would sometimes walk over to that Prince poster and he would just tear it down off the wall. He'd crumble it up into a ball. He'd throw it underneath the ma- under the bench. And he wouldn't mind me telling this story because, as we know, he's healthy now. Right. He, he survived. But anyway, I would pull that poster out and I'd straighten it back out and I'd put it back up on the wall. And I liked those guys. They treated me well. Graham and Stephen and David, they treated me well and they gave me a good opportunity. But musically... I was somewhere else. Um, I, I was I was a part of a younger generation, and musically I was yearning for something else. So in the summer of 83, I heard through Westlake Audio in Los Angeles. That's where uh, Thriller was recorded. Right, yeah. yeah. My, my um, boyfriend at the time, John Sacchetti, was the head tech at Westlake Audio, and John told me that, hey, we've been contacted by Prince's people. He's looking for a tech. That's your job. Your dream job is waiting for you. And I, I, I said, yeah, that's right. That's my dream job. Wait, I, I so, just couldn't believe it. Prince had told his management, Cavallo, Raffalo, and Farnoli, find me a tech and have it be someone from L.A. or New York, someone who's in the industry and really knows what they're doing. So at this point, Prince was just coming off the 1999 tour. He's getting ready to do Purple Rain. He has uh, working for him a local tech, a guy from, from Minneapolis. But, you know, uh, Minneapolis is not the music industry. So the pool of technicians there is going to be much much, much smaller than the technicians you're going to find in L.A. or New York because of, you know, exposure to the industry. So at this point, I had been in the business for five years, but I knew my stuff. I, I knew what I was doing. I could, I can repair things that are failing, and I can do it on my own without having to rely on anybody else. I, I, this is what I do. This is what I do for a living. So he needed someone of that caliber. Uh, he spoke to, or the, his management spoke to Westlake Audio and said, can you find us a tech uh, send us somebody. So Westlake, Glenn Phoenix from Westlake went back to the shop and he asked his techs, hey, you guys, does anybody know a technician who'd want to go to Minneapolis and work for Prince? And right away, John Sacchetti says, yeah, I know Sue. Sue will do it. John's from Boston and he had this accent like this. <laughs> yeah, Sue will do it. That's Sue's dream job. <laughs> so he called me and I said, yeah, that's my dream job. I'm going. So uh, Prince's management interviewed me and uh, they offered me a salary. They offered me a car. And I said, yeah, let's go. What was that interview process like? You know, they just asked questions about, uh, did I know this, that, and the other thing uh, having to do with technical stuff? And I said, yeah. And I think essentially it was a pretty short interview. Stephen Farnoli wanted to know, would I want to leave everyone I've ever known, home and family and friends and everybody, and be able to move out to Minneapolis? And could I repair things that go down in the middle of the night at three or four o'clock in the morning when there's no one else around? And the answer to all that was yes. I don't think they realized then, and it actually took Prince a little while to realize it. It it took him a while to realize that, one, I'm a Prince fan. Two, all your musical references, I know those references. Mm. Parliament, yeah, me too. I know those records. Sly, yeah, I got them all. No matter what we're talking about, if it's R&B music from the 70s, he loved Sylvester. Love Sylvester. Love Sylvester. Love Sylvester. 
you know, Man, just, I, I can see a lot of his influence. Yeah, I, he loved Sylvester. Yeah, that high voice. He loved uh, "You Make Me mm-hmm. Feel My Heart." He really loved one, that. One of my, me and my grandma's uh, song is "You Are My Friend." Oh. <laughs> I want like that's like our like song to each other. Oh, that's so sweet. A, a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. Um, but that that's that's quite remarkable. So, actually, your 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 boyfriend kind of. How long did the relationship last after that? Because he's uh, in he, Minnesota. Yeah, he was an ex-boyfriend. He was. Uh, oh, at that point he at was. At that an ex-boyfriend. point he was an ex, and and uh, and he's he's got a heart of gold, and he's a genius. Yeah, he, he taught does. Me, yeah, he taught me so much about electronics. But we had uh, kind of incompatible lifestyles. Uh, that's how I'll put it. Okay. But man, what a beautiful guy. Um, he um. He he yeah he knew he knew that that was what I had always wanted. Man, what and, a great ex! And oh yeah, he's yeah, he's a wonderful wonderful guy. And yeah, he didn't want that job, and none of the other LA techs they didn't want to go to work for Prince. Now remember, this was 1999. Uh, Prince had just had his first crossover single, mm-hmm. and he's you know he an interesting interesting artist, an artist that shows promise. But this is before Purple Rain, so a lot of people didn't recognize that he would become the legend that he became. Uh, so, yeah, that job wasn't as desirable then as it might sound now. How much time did you have to get out of L.A. and get to, to Minneapolis? Maybe just a few weeks. You know, I had to pack everything up and send my stuff. I had been officially hired by him on August 3rd, 1983, when that famous show took place at First Avenue, mm-hmm. although I hadn't moved out there yet. Unfortunately, if I had moved out there a week earlier, I would have been in the mobile truck wow. for that show. And unfortunately, I wasn't. Uh, my, it was my birthday. My friends were throwing me a, a going away party because I was just about to hit the road and, and arrive in Minneapolis. And so uh, you get out to, to Minneapolis. Like, Who picks you up from the airport? Prince had a woman working for him named Sandy Scipioni. Sandy was hired right out of high school, and she used to sell T-shirts at those early Prince shows. Uh, Sandy uh, was kind of, um, she took care of his home. She bought his orange juice, bought his deodorant and his toothpaste. Uh, She kept his house running, and uh, she kind of was kind of his girl Friday. So Sandy picked me up and got me into a hotel and got me settled in, and uh, it, it took a little minute. It really did. It took weeks for Prince to recognize what I was capable of. Uh, I wasn't going to tell him, and uh, I, I didn't know what I was capable of, really. I knew that I was a technician, and the first thing I needed to do was um, he had he had just bought some new equipment from Westlake Audio. He bought a new console, and that needed to be installed in his home studio, his house on Kiowa Trail in Chanhassen. So I had to pull out the old console install the new console, which means connecting every single wire, all the ins and outs, and then troubleshooting everything. As well, his tape machine was giving him some problems. You know, there were certain tracks that had issues that had to be repaired. There was a little list of some other outboard gear that was, you know, crackling or fizzing or not working. So I had about a week's worth of work to do in his home studio. What was the first time that you met him? The first time I met him, uh, I remember it well, I had been in his house. Now, this house was a, let me think for a minute, one, two, three, four, I think it was like a four-bedroom suburban home. Okay. So there were two bedrooms downstairs, his master bedroom, and then right across the hall was a smaller bedroom that had been converted into the studio. 
So I'm working in this bedroom studio that's across the hall from his master bedroom. It's bisected. These two rooms are bisected by the stairwell. And then just above the stairs, if you were to go up the stairs and make a right turn, right above the home studio bedroom was where the kitchen meets the dining room, which is adjacent to the living room. And that's where the piano was. So while I'm downstairs, I can hear him upstairs playing the piano for hours. And I'm hearing Purple Rain and Computer Blue, and I'm hearing all these pieces that would be part of the Purple Rain record. He he did that for hours. I can hear him taking meetings with his bands upstairs. I can hear him uh, on the floor of the kitchen rehearsing dance moves. And all this time, I haven't met him because he's notoriously shy, for one thing. And so I would come in to that downstairs studio through the garage and just come in through the garage, and there's, there's that studio... And Sandy Scipioni would arrange for me to uh, take a taxi or whatever, come out there and come in and do my work, and then I'd leave, and I'd tell Sandy, tell him, this is how far I got, and it'll be this much longer. So I was finally finished. I had just done the last wire, the last repair, and I called Sandy, and I said, I'm done. We're done. And um, it was kind of late at night, and I said, what should I do? She says, okay, I'll call him and tell him. So he, she rings, the, rings him upstairs. He takes the phone call, and then I hear the patter of his feet on the stairs, and he comes downstairs. And I met him in the doorway. So he's standing on the stairwell. He's a few steps above me. And he, say, ask, he, he didn't introduce himself. He asks, what about this? Did you fix this? Did you do that? Is this done? He, he just asked these questions, and I answered. And then he said, okay, come back tomorrow morning, whatever time. And he turns around to go up, upstairs, and there was something in it that just didn't feel right to me. There was, I've just moved 2,300 miles. I quit a job that was a good job. I've left everyone I've ever known. I've been working for you for a week. And there was a little instinct that said, um, don't, don't let him go up the stairs. Not like this. And, and just reacting purely on instinct, as he turned and he went upstairs, I just said, Prince. And he stopped and he turned around and he says, yeah. And I stuck my hand out to shake hands. I said, I'm Susan Rogers. And I looked him dead in the eye. Come on. Yeah. This is how we're starting, right? And he got a a look on his face that I would come to recognize uh, often. It's a look of bemusement. He's trying not to laugh. (laughs) Because he thought, this is very formal and this is very funny. And he just went, I'm Prince. (laughs) (laughs) And... And we shook hands, and we kind of did that little bow, like, okay. <laughs> and it reminds me now of, like, the Wizard of Oz, because it was all very very formal. But it's like, I, they just said, you know, you're going to know who I am. And the subtext of that exchange was, this is a voluntary construct. You agree to hire me, but you can fire me at any time. I agree to work for you, but I can quit at any time. So... As boss and employee, we occupy different rungs on the stratum, very different rungs. We're different people as boss and employee. As human beings, we're equal. So let's just start with this one little human moment. You're you, I'm me. And from this moment onward, we're going to be boss and employee. But let's remember that it started like this. You're you, and I'm me, and we're two young 20-somethings who are working together. And that served me well. That made it easy 
to work with him going forward. Um, um, in hindsight, I'm really glad I did that. Wow. And so how did you transfer over from being maintenance tech to stepping into like an engineering role? Well, that basically happened, I think, the next day because he had me come in and put up the tape, Darling Nikki. And um, that's something that the maintenance checks don't do. You know, I, have, I have a question. Mm. Can we go back to that point? What was the house like? It was a... Was it decorated? Yeah, more or less, kind of. Prince was conservative, personally. Conservative in his nature. And um, the house uh, had was recently painted purple, but it was on Kiowa Trail. He ultimately gave it to his dad when he got the the new house on Galpin Road, but it was on Kiowa Trail, a suburban family home with a front yard and a backyard, a nice house, but n- no mansion. It was a you know split-level suburban home in a quiet area of Chanhassen. There was a lake behind behind the house with a swamp. I don't think I don't recall if that home had a swimming pool. I don't think it did. Uh, split-level home, and you can see actually some of the walls of it. If you look at the controversy record and you pull out those posters, you'll mm-hmm. see the pictures of Vanity and 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 uh, yeah, the, the pictures of Vanity. I think were on the Vanity album. Anyway, those were taken in in the bathroom of the house. So there was some there was some purple carpeting, and uh, there, there there were some nods to his aesthetic. But nothing that would be outrageous. And it was modest. He was so busy. He was really busy. He just didn't have time to care about stuff like that. His bedroom downstairs was really cool. It was low ceilinged, relatively small as a master bedroom. I remember there was, it was decorated the way, this might be a good way to picture it. It was decorated the way a kid from the suburbs bedroom might be decorated if his parents were fairly well off. Okay. Not yeah, imagine that you're a doctor or a lawyer, this the son of a doctor or a lawyer, a teenager, and this is what your bedroom looks like. First thing that comes to mind is like Macaulay Culkin's bedroom at Home Alone. Hmm. Yeah. It was. It was a little bit. It was a little bit more rock star than that. But <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, I think the color scheme was, it was red and black and gray and a little bit of purple. And you know, his clothes are in the closet. But this is you wouldn't picture. A, it's not a mansion. Okay. This is just a just a bedroom. And uh, there was a turntable in there. And he used to play. He would play records to death. When he wasn't playing his own music, he played a lot of records. Uh, what kind of records do you remember him playing a lot? Yeah, I remember Culture Club. He played mm. Culture Club, and he played The Cars, and uh, when she came along, he played Whitney Houston a lot. He played dance records, a lot of, a lot of 12-inch dance remixes. Uh, he, he would, oh, this drove me nuts. Sometimes he'd leave the house, and he'd put a record on, on repeat. And he would just let that record just repeat over and over again. And I'd be working in the studio. And, <laughs> and I was too shy to go into his bedroom and, like, take it off. Right, like, right. what am I going to do? And Sandy Scipione would come in and just, <laughs> and just pull, the, pull, <laughs> that, pull that stylus right off that record. So, yeah, his home was, was modest. And it would be the kind of home that any college professor could afford today. It, it was modest. And so I'll go back, uh, back to that question. Uh, how did you make the transition from... Uh, from maintenance tech to to engineering. So the next day, it's also a humongous leap. Big leap. This is like going from like high school to the league, sure, and then going in the league to playing yeah. in the NBA finals and then yeah. winning the MVP. Yeah, 
This is the bat boy being asked to, you know, drive a double to the gap and <laughs> save the game. This Absolutely. is what this is. So, because <laughs> I, I actually really, my first engineering really was at the top. Um, so he had me put up the tape of Darling Nikki. And this is something that maintenance techs don't do. The job description doesn't include anything that is of an artistic nature. The techs repair the equipment. They don't use the equipment. The engineers, who are artists in their own right, as your podcast listeners know, um, use the equipment. So he had me put up this tape, and that's my first thinking, like, there's going to be an engineer coming along, and that engineer's going to be pretty mad that I did this. But hey, he's my boss. He told me to. So I put up the tape, and I remember pushing up the faders, and hearing this for the first time, and as a Prince fan thinking, I just can't wait. I can't wait for this to come out. The fans are going to go crazy. The fans are going to love this. This is going to be amazing, because I was a fan. And I'm like, I get to hear this new Prince song before it's released. I, 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 I never lost that feeling. I never lost the feeling of gratitude for being right there when these things are coming out of the delivery room. I mean, it's like being in the delivery room when something really special is being born. But anyway, he had me put up a, a vocal mic. Jill Jones was coming over later, and we were going to be uh, doing a vocal on the song Mia Boca that okay. was going to be in the movie. So he had me put up a vocal mic, and again, I'm thinking, you know, an engineer's going to walk in the door any minute, and, and I'm going to have some explaining to do. So finally, I got up the courage to just ask him, Who's going to engineer it? And he just said, you. And I realized, okay, there is no engineer. It's me. So I would... Who was his engineer before with, uh, with Darling Nikki? There was... Uh, Prince could do a lot of it himself, but there was... He a could engineer too? Sure. Uh, he he choose, kind of chooses not to. Yeah. But uh, he he knew enough that if somebody routed everything, he could he could take it from there. So, so to your knowledge, Darling Nikki, he engineered like the vocals and a lot of, a lot of himself. Yeah. So everything would have been routed properly and gain staged in advance. But he would do the artistic manipulation that involves the level control, the reverbs, the EQ, things like that. Okay. So imagine um, what would be a good analogy. I suppose it'd be a little bit like having a sous chef do all the prep for you of all the ingredients mm, and, gotcha. you know, giving you the kitchen and you got the tools, all the prep work has been done. The chef comes in and then, and then puts it all together. So it was a little bit similar to that. But anyway, the, he, he expected me to engineer. And then it took a little while before I realized he thinks I'm an engineer. And it took him a little while before he realized I wasn't. <laughs> so what I knew was... I knew the routing, I knew the equipment, I knew the equipment like the back of my hand, but I'd never actually made records before. So in those early days, uh, he called in David Leonard when we, David Leonard was uh, Peggy McCreary's boyfriend, Peggy was Prince's engineer at Sunset Sound. When we would go to Sunset Sound, Peggy was a staff engineer there, so Peggy and I would work together on Prince's, Prince's material. Anyway, her boyfriend was David Leonard, and Prince loved working with David Leonard. He called him David the Blade because David had good editing, razor blade editing skills. So in the early first few months when we were working on Purple Rain, uh, Prince would sometimes bring out uh, David Leonard. Um, but then eventually he realized that anything David could do, I could do too. David had more experience as an engineer, but I'm coming up fast. Yeah. And of course I'm protective. I want that damn job because I have that job and I, I want that to be my turf. You know, I don't want to be blocked into this, just this, just this tech role. 
So, wow. so I, I, I proved myself and he eventually let me just uh, have that chair from there on out. Wow. Okay. So what was the first song that you, you engineered? Do you, remember, do you remember off the album? Really, in, that you can call engineering, because Darling Nikki was, was finished when I put that tape up. It would have been uh, Let's Go Crazy. Don't lie. Would you live in here? Take a look around. At least you got friends. I call my own lady. That was your first one? Yeah. Okay. So could you d- describe that experience? And, and also, too, what challenges does this present to you? You know, one thing that is very important with this interview to, to be speaking with you right now that I, you know, it really sank in with me on the bus on the way here was that Prince played all of his own instruments. And so, you know, when I interview other folks for a particular album, there's more parts. Um, you know, I can talk to a bass player. Or I can talk to the saxophonist. This is a very intimate project with with mm-hmm. with you and him. Um, yeah. You kind of the you you are the you know last piece of the puzzle to to this album, as far as being able to tell a story uh, with it. So, what was that like working with someone that could do it all? Um, and did, did that present any challenges to you? Um, being that it's a very intimate album, so like an, like an album of you and you and him yeah and there were, there were other engineers involved of course because when i joined um a song some songs had already been recorded so i can't take credit for doing purple rain as you'll see when you read the credits or, and i'm speaking to not you but to the listener uh there are more engineers on there prince did a lot of that in advance but in advance of my arrival out at sunset sound so peggy mccreary and david leonard are on there david rivkin was in the mobile truck recording the live show on the stage at first avenue august 3rd 1983 mm. and a remarkable show that was the show that really sort of launched uh, a new phase in prince's career so I was a part of that scene, and uh, I would become a much bigger part of his working life on Around the World in a Day and on the Parade album and Sign of the Times. But anyway, uh, to, to work with Prince one-on-one was, in hindsight, I've come to see how lucky he was to have an engineer who was a technician because he needed a lot of tech work done. We... Um, had a rehearsal space at St. Louis. St. Louis Park is a suburb of Minneapolis, and Prince had this kind of crude warehouse rehearsal space, and that's where uh, they would prep for the movie, and that's where his, his band would rehearse, and there were big cutting tables there where Lewis and Vaughn, the two guys who made his clothes at that time, would cut out the fabrics to custom make his clothes, the clothes he wore in the movies. I mean, you're thinking that this might be with a massive star of this caliber, that he would have a a shining, gleaming space devoted to getting his work done. He didn't. He had a small little warehouse with greasy windows and a ceiling that was uh, dripping rust. I think it had been a tire factory before we got there, if I'm remembering correctly. Maybe I'm not. Maybe it was something to do with manufacturing. So when he says, I want to record rehearsal... What needs to happen is that the band is set up, the stage is no stage, it's just a riser at one end of the room and a piece of carpet where the band is going to stand and 
perform. So the mics that are in that area need to feed a splitter snake. A splitter snake takes microphone signals and can send them two places. Mm -hmm. So one place it has to go is to the monitor mix console. Cubby is uh, his monitor mixer, and Cubby has dialed in the sounds so that the band can hear themselves on stage. But the other place that those microphones go needed to be a recording console. You don't set up recording studios in warehouses because... Typically, you know, you need acoustic isolation and you right. need good power, you need clean ground. But if Prince asked you to do something, you just did it. So we would hire a truck, pulled a console down there to that warehouse, set it up. I would, of course, have to wire everything in so it could all be hooked up, pull a tape machine down there, set up monitors. And now we have a studio that we've just assembled in this warehouse. It has been done in the past. Led Zeppelin and a lot of the British rock bands would rent a castle and they just put in recording equipment in a castle. But that would take a team of people and it would take weeks. Yeah. When Prince asked you to do something, he'd look at his watch and you've got 12 minutes. <laughs> so we had to go really fast and it had to be right. And I was just loving every minute of it. I mean, this is, this is a stretch and this is why it was advantageous for him to have a technician work as his engineer because I didn't know the rules of engineering, so I didn't have to worry about breaking them. Wow. I, I, I could, uh, as long as it pulled signal, as long as we could get signal from his instruments to hit, to the tape, we're good. We're good. And it's going to break every rule of high fidelity. So what? So what? Uh, that, that was uh, that was how he liked to work. He was happy with that. And that was the only way I could work. So that was advantageous for me. For this Purple Rain album, was it was it known that he was making an album for a movie? At that time, yes. Uh, I don't know when in his original thinking the idea for the movie emerged. I don't know if the I, album and the movie emerged concurrently. Maybe they did. I don't know. Yeah. But when I joined him in August of 83... It As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Discussion was already underway. I think Inc. had already been signed on contracts because Al Magnoli uh, was was on board to direct that film. 
Because mm, I think that that plays a very uh, integral part in the direction sonically and musically mm -hmm. of uh, uh, of the album. If, if you know you're making something for a soundtrack, it's almost like you're making it for a particular scene, and you're yes. painting it. Uh, a picture and that that plays a big part in even the sonics of of the record. So in this album, it's this album was a concept album in the truest sense of the word, but you're right. The album has to uh support a narrative, a narrative thread of what happens in the movie. It doesn't have to be a chronological narrative necessarily. First this happened and then that happened, but uh the songs that are on this album need to be reflected by the movie. Now bear in mind, this is the the thing that I find really interesting. When he conceived of this, he would have been 24 years old. 24 years old. And he's about to make his sixth album. He's going to be 25 soon, that summer, right? Think how easily this could have killed his career. If that had been a horrible movie, that record would have gone down like a lead balloon. And, and then think about the good and visionary and courageous people at Warner Brothers that let their young rising star, who's now been on the cover of Rolling Stone and had his first crossover hit, propose an idea that potentially could kill his career. And they said yes. They said, yeah, we'll bankroll it. Go ahead. Those were great wow. record people, that they would give this power to this kid who hadn't shown any capacity to earn it. That, that you know, Are you deserving of this power? And they believed in him that much. That's a testament to those people. And it's a testament to him as well. And, and, and what they, they saw in him what was actually there. He was a legendary artist, and they saw it early on. It's a great point you bring up because a lot of pressure uh, to be under. Um, at a very volatile, your career can kind of go one way or the other uh, with, this, with this particular move. Did you ever feel that were you under pressure did you feel any personal pressure and did he come across that he felt any personal pressure or was he more of a cool calm collected uh, type of character when it comes to his workspace yeah uh he set the tone for us and he was sublimely confident around that time and i can contrast that to how he felt around um under the cherry moon he was aware that under the cherry moon was not going to do the same kind of box office that Purple Rain had done. He was aware that it wasn't the same work of art. So I know what he was like when he was worried, because I saw it for Under the Cherry Moon. He was not worried for Purple Rain. He was so confident and so happy. I don't know if that's what I've, I've heard it described as the clear ether of youth. You're just delirious. You're drunk on being young. <laughs> You're drunk on feeling powerful. And uh, maybe that was it. But he was confident because he was so confident. I think it dispelled the doubts among the rest of us. I, I, I'd never, it never occurred to me that I was not qualified for my job. It never occurred to me. I, I had that hungry spirit. I mean, look look at where, where I was. This is 1983. Five years ago, I'm getting beaten up by a husband in Orange County, California, five years ago. And now I'm making records with a guy who's going to be one of the biggest pop stars in the world. 
doubt myself? Oh, hell no. I was, <laughs> the, no. I, I, you know, you feel like, I had mentioned earlier that escape velocity, that pressure that launches you into a career. When that pressure launches you into the place where you always want to be, most of us are going to say, I'm not taking this for granted. I'm right. not going to look around. I'm not going to doubt myself. I'm not going to question whether or not I deserve to be here. I'm here, and that's all that matters. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to do the best work I can do every single day because I'm here, and I know what it took to get here. And I think that was our attitude. And so uh, I think I may have cut you off a little bit. I want to uh, get more into, like, Let's Go Crazy in that, that first song. Is there any story that comes to mind uh, about your, your first session yeah, it was 35 years ago. It was a long time ago. But Prince fans will know this story because I've told it elsewhere. But I can say uh, in through the haze of 35 years of memory, I remember that one pretty well. I remember, I think I do anyway, uh, I remember, and I'm, I'm, uh, let me hit that pause button there, and let me be clear that everything I say is to the best of my recollection true. And because I'm a scientist now and because I worship the truth, it matters a great deal to me that what I say is true. I, if, I, if I feel doubt, I'm, I will err on the side of not saying it. Um, so to the best of my recollection, this is I, I feel quite accurate about this. Uh, the, they took a long time to rehearse that song. I remember that. Going through the arrangement. It took a long time, uh, longer than normal for him. It would have been lightning speed for most regular artists, but if for Prince to spend four or five hours on an arrangement, that's a long time for him. Just because what he's doing with a song is he's pushing it and pulling it in different directions to see what it can be. I remember um, feeling puzzled by that out-of-tune keyboard part by Matt Fink at the very beginning, like, do you not think that's a mistake? And knowing that Prince was a musical genius, he, he, I knew that obviously he knows it isn't a mistake. So that was a clue to me that what he's looking for is not perfection. What he's looking for is a vibe and a certain feel. That gave me, uh, th those are the kinds of thoughts that eventually become the thoughts of a record producer when you're, uh, you're uh, assessing why things are the way they are when they have the possibility of being different. You can choose different tones. You can choose a different, different tempo, different key. Why is this the way it is? Well, because it's serving a function. It's serving the, the mood of this song, the thing we're trying to get across. So uh, I remember the song taking shape. And then I remember another strong moment. I remember this well because uh, my heart was racing during it. When everyone had gone home, and it was just the two of us, and he and I were staying late because he wanted to redo the guitar solo. So we were there, um, we were there, the two of us, and he's sitting in the chair at the console. He's got his guitar. It's an armless chair, obviously, because he's got his electric guitar in his lap. And um, I'm sitting there as well. He's playing the guitar solo, and I'm new to engineering, and I'm new to engineering with him. But he had me rewind, and um, he wanted me to punch in. So he had made a mistake, and he wanted me to keep the first part of it and then resume recording at a certain part so that he could fix the mistake. So we rewind, and he's, I'm playing the solo, playing the tape. He's playing the guitar, and I'm not in record mode. So the tape is playing. He's playing guitar. I'm not recording, and I'm thinking... I don't know, maybe maybe I missed something. Maybe I'm supposed to be recording right now. He's probably going to be really mad because I didn't catch this. So at some point, I just went dink, and I hit the record button. 
And he reached over immediately and he went dink and hit the stop button. And he looked at me and he said, who cued you? And I, yeah, that was how he, how he communicated with people. He cut right to the chase. He just said, who cued you? And I, I probably just shook my head and he said, roll back, watch my face. I will give you a cue. When I cue you is when you go into record. I said, okay. And I realized, ooh, <laughs> I'm not going to die. <laughs> He's not going to kill me. So, okay. So I, I survived that mistake. So we rolled back. I watched his face. And what I have to do is as he's playing, I'm watching his face. He's um, about to cue me. So before he cues me, uh, his chin is going to come up because his head nod is going to be the cue. And I've picked up enough by now to know that I need to go in on the beat. So he cued me. I punched in. Everything was good. We finished out the night. And obviously, he must have enjoyed working with me or had some faith in me because he kept me around. Prince didn't suffer fools gladly. And if, if you made too many mistakes too fast, you were out of there so fast. But he kept me around, and he gave me second chances. I eventually, um, this was, this was kind of beautiful because I eventually learned to read his face so well that we could work for a long time silently. When he would make a mistake, I would I would see it in his head, and I could just immediately rewind the machine, roll back, and then I could watch his face, and I would just know, like Clever Hans, that horse that's you know everybody in Psych 101 reads about. I would just know, here here's where we're going in, and that that wordless communication really facilitates working for long hours. And he liked to work wordlessly, and we could do that. Uh, how long was the recording process uh, to make the entire album? Uh, th that record was made in stops and starts because um, the band was having to take acting lessons. He's working on the script with William uh, Blinn, was his last name. He's working on acting lessons himself and, and taking meetings with Al Magnoli. So it didn't work the way a Prince record would normally go, where you devote your time exclusively to just making a record. So he was making a record and a movie simultaneously. So that that record, those songs were recorded on on different did in different places there were some re recorded in Minneapolis some in Sunset Sound and then ultimately all sequenced together as it as the rec as the movie was coming together wow so and you were traveling uh to the different studios? Yes. Okay. So uh, for the most part. Now, there was an early trip in the fall of 83. He needed to go out to Los Angeles to take meetings, and he would work at Sunset Sound every time he was in L.A. And he left me to stay behind uh, to stay behind at uh, his home studio. And he had told Jesse Johnson from the time that Jesse could work at the home studio. And um, that was really fortuitous for me because Jesse became my friend right away, and um, he did a great thing for me. Jesse showed me a lot of tips and tricks as to how to be an engineer for Prince. It was Jesse who taught me that. Jesse taught me things like, with Prince, the kick drum has to sound like this, and he would show me on the EQ. The hi-hat always has to be panned over here. The guitar always has to be over here. Jesse gave me so many tips, taught me so much in that week that we worked together. So Jesse and I were using the studio uh, because Jesse was writing material that ended up on, on his first solo album when he eventually left the time. And also he did some writing that ended up on um, Ice Cream Castle, okay. that album. I was having a conversation with my uh, engineer of the podcast. His name is Mark Berg. Great guy. Mm. We talked about uh, greatness and and 
what it takes to be great and how a lot of people want to be great, uh, but they're not aware of the sacrifices that come along with being great. Uh, and from this 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 uh, process of doing this podcast, uh, I recognize that people have sacrificed so much. Uh, to be great means that other things in life, you know, kind of go to the wayside. What did you What did you have to sacrifice to achieve this album? Personally, or do you mean Prince and and the organization as a whole? Um, personally. Well, for me, my time with him, and it was over four years, um, meant that I had no personal life. There was no dating. There was no uh, Christmases, birthdays, New Year's Eve with family. None of that. I, I, I did that very happily. I mean, but it's not sustainable. You can't do it forever. But during that time, it was like a tour of duty. He, um, he would pay us, he paid us decently. And in exchange for that paycheck, I was his, I was on call 24 seven. I was at his beck and call 365 days a year, any hour, any hour of the day or night. That was that was our contract, a, a, an unspoken, unwritten contract. But that that's the deal. So I sacrificed a personal life during that time. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd do it again in a red hot minute. I mean, I, I, the, the, it was that. Um, I think really that's kind of the only thing that comes to mind because what I gained was incredible. I mean, the experience made me an engineer, which ultimately made me a producer. It uh, that sacrifice, giving up everything other than being Prince's engineer facilitating his work was was a great great opportunity just to think you know I was thinking the other day about women and and women who do unusual professions I was remembering a time wasn't that long ago I attended a a family function it was a wedding or something and my sister-in-law who's always impeccably groomed, looked down at my hands, and she said, your hands are a disgrace. She says, why didn't we get you to get a mani-pedi? I think I've only had one in my whole life. You didn't, no nail polish. My hands are a mess. And, uh, and, and I looked down at them, at my hands, and I realized, oh, that is kind of embarrassing, you know, compared to most women. I, my hands are a mess. But these hands have built so many studios. These hands have recorded so many works of art. Yeah, uh, they, they've 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 done a hell of a lot, and and that's a trade-off. You know, you miss uh, you miss out being a a normal woman for one thing, normal in the sense that you have girlfriends and you know you go out to the movies or you go out for a glass of wine or what. What am I going to, you know, most of the women my age, they got married and they had children and they have husbands and they have children and that's a wonderful thing. And they're really great at being wives and and being moms. You, You can't do that and have the same kind of life that I've had. So what that does for you is it gives you this great life, but it removes you from a community of people who would recognize that what you've done like and and now you're isolated in, in those conversations you can't join in you, right. you don't you don't have anything to say um so you have to find like-minded individuals and th- those people can be hard to find because they're really busy too right Cause what, what was a typical session like was there any type of routine that was set or what was a because one thing about prince as well there's such an aura of mystery 
almost as if like when people tell stories about him, like he walks on water mm-hmm. type of like the wind blows when he steps out of the door type of type of ambiance that surrounds him in the aura. Um, what was his working life like? Because at the end of the day, one thing that over, I think gets overlooked in the music industry is these are workers. Mm-hmm. These guys are workers. Um, what was his work ethic like, you know, the hours put into the studio per day or a typical session? His work ethic was beyond compare. I think that was one of the things that I admired about him the most and allowed me to work with him as long as I did. I I related to him because he took a working man's approach to his craft. Um, I come from working people, working class people, and our work ethic in our family was really, really strong. Work is something that you do, and you do it with with pride because it... um, it's your job. Uh, that's that was my family's attitude. That was his attitude as well. And he assumed that the people who worked for him shared that work ethic. So he really didn't think he was putting you out if he asked you to, you know, come back to work after two or three hours of sleep, which was pretty much the norm. Uh, he didn't think that was a problem. <laughs> he just assumed, well, of course you're going to be happy. We get to work, right? You know, why wouldn't you? Uh, and I was. Um, he. Uh, there was no routine necessarily, but there was a norm. The norm was to start a song and then not leave the studio until it was done. Uh, That's extremely unusual. The way most records get made is you do one part at a time. Um, You do your basic tracks, and then you'll do just one part at a time over a series of weeks until it's finally ready to mix. And when it mixes, you you send it out to another engineer to get mixed, and that other engineer will do the mix in a day, and then you live with that, and maybe you do a, a remix or just whatever. But Prince, we would do everything all in one day. Uh, tracking it, overdubbing it, mixing, and a day later it'd, it'd be done. So you didn't take that tape off until until you had just finished mixing it and it was in the closet. Now sometimes we would come back and we'd revisit songs like Wonderful Ass or he came back and revisited I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man and Slow Love. Those were old songs that he had recorded years ago and never released and you know, he kept them in the vault. But for the most part, um, we did... Uh, one song at a time, and and when we weren't on tour, we did a song a day. Now, bear in mind, he's also, while he's doing his own music, he's also doing music for The Time and Vanity Six and Sheila E., and he's writing songs for, at this time in the 80s, there was, what was his name, Kenny Rogers, and did a song for Shaka Khan, and uh, did did songs for other people that that became huge hits for them. He, He never stopped working. He never stopped working. How many songs did he record for the album and then how was the track listing selected Mm. well albums for most people start and stop so you'll finish an album you tour the album and then you start brainstorming what your next record is going to be but it wasn't that way with prince because he was so prolific and he was writing songs all the time it wasn't always clear when a record started or stopped so think of it this way Uh, he's constantly recording he as he's constantly recording he's brainstorming what his next record will say now when you when you do a record or if you're a, a real complete artist like back in the old days a record 
you need to tour that record. So a record is going to have a look. It's going to have clothes that go with it. It's going to have a backdrop on stage that goes with it. It's going to have a worldview in the text of its lyrics. Here's, here's who I am today. Here's what matters to me today. Here's what I'm thinking about today. So you can think about Sign of the Times. The color scheme was peach and black, and the songs collectively are representing that Prince is thinking more about the world out there beyond his door. But anyway, Purple Rain, um, there were many, many more songs written at that time that didn't necessarily appear on the Purple Rain record. Strange Relationship, for one thing. Strange Relationship is a song he was working on around the time of Purple Rain, but that didn't make the record until uh, Sign of the Times. Mm -hmm. So there weren't really stops and starts. Recording was kind of continuous. Sometimes, when he thought he had an album, we would sequence together side A and side B of a record and listen to it and live with it. And then often, we'd take it apart and put those mixes back on their original reels only to reassemble a record at another point. I have at home in my possession, I have a big track sheet that has a um, a sequence for Sign of the Times that was never released. It's got some different pieces mm -hmm. on it that was never released. That was at one point that was sides A, B, C, and D of Sign of the Times. But we were always taking things apart and putting them back together. Crystal Ball at one time was an album. The Dream Factory was going to be an album. Sign of the Times at one point was going to be a triple album. Uh, there were these ideas, and then these ideas would fall apart. So you never really knew when you were sequencing an album together if this was the final cut. Uh, after it was sequenced together, by sequenced I mean cutting together the half-inch master mixes, and then you'd take it over to Grundman mastering on Sunset Sound, and Bernie Grundman would master for you. He'd give you test pressings of side A and side B. Um, Prince and I would live with those test pressings and decide for ourselves... Uh, are we done? Well, he would make that call artistically. I'd make, uh, I'd comment on the, the the mixes and the levels and the mastering and things like that, the technical stuff. But it was up to him to decide. Yeah, this is. I'm ready. This is my next record. And so now the the album is done. Do you remember hearing it for the last time before it goes out to the world? No, I can't say that I remember hearing it before it goes out to the world. I have a strong memory of when it arrived at the warehouse, when the boxes of LPs arrived, and we all pulled the albums out, and we're, the crew, you know, we're all standing around at the warehouse, and we pull out the records, and we're looking at it, and I remember I wrote about this in the liner notes for the uh, the Purple Rain Deluxe set that came out this summer. Uh, we're looking at it, and I remember one crew member said, What's with the dead flowers? It looks like celery. <laughs> and I can hear the crew kind of going, oh, what's up with this? You know, not a great album cover. And I didn't know. I mean, I was, I was too, too innocent, just too naive to know, is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. I don't know. But that was the feeling of, of recognizing that he's our fearless leader, and he seems to know. And uh, he, he was very happy with it. Wow. And did you know that it was going to be as big? Um, you know, I often, you know, ask folks before the, the big release comes out, are you aware of, of the moment and how big the moment is? Because it's also coming with the film. 
yeah. uh, as well. I wasn't. I was too young and too naive. I didn't know. There was an electricity in the air, but who was I to know what that electricity was? It could be impending doom, <laughs> yeah. or it could be impending greatness. I didn't know. Uh, I, I expect if you were to speak to Alan Leeds, more seasoned, Alan was his operations manager who had been with Sly Stone, uh, rather had been with James Brown um, for years before Prince, and Alan knew the, some of the more veteran folks in our in our crew knew, but there weren't that many veteran folks in Prince's immediate Minneapolis crew. We were most of us were young and beginners. Wow, wow! We should, you just you know you just you feel the excitement in the air, but you don't know. It's like a kid on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. Something's gonna happen, but I don't know what it is. Uh, do you remember seeing the movie for the first time? Yeah. Uh, where, tell me about that experience. Now, we would have seen the movie, or, uh, would have seen scenes of the movie while doing the incidental music. Um, so, uh, and I was on the movie set when scenes were being shot. So, uh, the, much of it I knew, but to actually sit in a theater with people who bought tickets to see it that first time is just a huge relief uh, because you realize people like it. The theater was full. People were screaming and yelling at the at the screen and jumping up and down. And uh, it's it's that relief of knowing, yeah, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. We did good. How did that album, or, or did that album change your change your life? Like, how, how how did that change your career after that? Uh, I just kept rolling forward as his employee. That was one record done, and there would be more to come. We actually finished around the world in a day. Before we even went, well, we finished that record really on the Purple Rain tour. So we were working on Around the World in a Day before we even started the Purple Rain tour. Halfway through the Purple Rain tour, um, Christmas Eve, in fact, uh, we were we were Prince and I were in a mobile truck after the show that we played in Minneapolis on on Christmas Eve, December twenty fourth. Prince and I worked that night and the next day on songs for. Uh, for around the world today. So albums, th- this work was was a continuum. Work was always going on. Always, always, always. And what changed after Purple Rain was uh, Prince changed. Uh, he um, kind of lost his innocence a little bit at that period. I remember when we finally got off, we finally got off the road from that tour and he starts planning the parade album the, and and. Uh, under the cherry moon, he was he was different. His innocence was gone, and now uh, artistically, he had um, now he had the problem of success. And the problems of success are they're just as difficult as the problems of failure. It's just a different set of problems. You know, success success comes with more money, but it's a problem knowing how to handle money. Money's like fire. It can burn your house down if you don't handle it properly. It needs to be contained and and understood and managed. So this kid has the problems of fame and the problems of money and the problems of employees. And he's handling it. He's handling it. But that's going to take a toll on a kid. Uh, I'm sometimes asked if I were to pick one adjective to describe Prince, what would that adjective be? I, I thought about it carefully before I answered it the first time. And I stand by my original answer, which was his salient characteristic was courage. Tremendous guts. He had the intelligence. He had, his raw native intelligence was really, really high. But he had the guts 
to not give in to salacious behavior, to not give in to scandal, to not give in to the temptations of fame. He had the courage to be himself and to hold himself and, and his employees to this high standard, to this high work ethic, to not rest on success, to not be lazy, to not get full of yourself and think, oh, you're all that, you know, because you had this hit record. No, we've got more work to do. And he always said we. He always said we and us and our. He always included his people as part of his creative process. He was easy to love. He was easy to follow. He, he was easy to work for at that time. So this, sure, there's this great mystery that surrounds him. And of course, the man changed over the course of his life. I didn't know him in the 90s or in the 2000s. I'm speaking about that period when I knew him, which was the mid-80s. And how did you, um, you know, what was the turning point for you to, to walk away and, and do something else? Um, and what was that conversation like? Was it hard for you and... and yeah, it was it was no longer sustainable, the lifestyle that I had been living. Um, it was not something that you can do forever, for me or for him. He needed constant change in his band members, in his clothes, in his girlfriends, in, in his surroundings. He needed change in order to inspire him so he could continue to write. So um, after... Uh, it was, I think it was se September, if I'm remembering correctly. September of 87 is when... Paisley Park finally opened its doors. We finally could open the doors for business. And at this point, his working life now could go in a new, he could have a new methodology because now he can have more than one room running at a time. So when I worked for him, it was either his home studio or it was Sunset Sound. That's where we worked. Or we went into recording studios on the road. But now he's got a Minneapolis-based facility where he can rehearse and he can record and he can have several engineers and he can have an assistant engineer. He can have people right there under one roof. He's got everything he needs. So that was the perfect time for me to make my exit. And he and I were growing. Um, we'd gotten into a comfortable working routine and Prince was not comfortable with comfort. Not at all. Uh, it, it was in the air that it was the right time. What the catalyst was, was I was in Los Angeles working on the Sign of the Times concert film with a, a technician that we had brought in who was familiar with film soundtracks. So this technician and I were working together, and he and I had a date. I went out on a date for the first time in years. And um, Prince was in Minneapolis, and he was trying to reach me, and he couldn't reach me. And it was the first time in four years that he didn't know where I was and that I didn't respond to that phone call. And he was furious. He flew out to Los Angeles. He had some post-production work to do. Uh, he and I went toe-to-toe -to -toe in a room, and we kind of ended the way we began, looking at each other like, okay, we're two people, and this is a voluntary construct. You can fire me. I can quit. We've been this and that to each other, employer, employee, but we don't have to be. And maybe now's the time to not be that anymore. Mm. It was sad and it was obvious. And um, looking back on it, I kind of like the way it ended because um, I felt... And, and we saw each other afterwards uh, several times and this was reiterated. He knew I loved him and I knew he loved me. He said 
he said it, and as I said it to him, um, we loved each other, and we did well together, and um, we each got what we wanted and what we needed out of that out of that relationship. Uh, what was the last time you guys spoke? It would have been mid '90s. I think it was, yeah, mid-90s. I was touring with a band called Gegita, and Gegita and I, we were in Minneapolis. We had a show, and then after the show, we went to Glam Slam just to just to see the club dance, and Prince was there and uh, saw him, and we had a little reunion. He asked me to go to New York with him that night, and, and I could into him on tour with a band. I can't do that. Uh, it was always so good to see him, but that was the last time. Um, so I, I want to ask some uh, some expert questions mm. from from my my good good pals to wrap up the interview. This question comes from uh, my good friend Mark Bird of MBM Studios in New York, and he's uh, uh, a good friend of mine who also is the engineer uh, uh, for this podcast. So it gets me sounding super super awesome. Uh, what was Prince's favorite mic to use? On his vocals, he liked in the studio the Tube U47. We always used that. We used it at Sunset Sound. He had one or two of them at home. Uh, and then on stage, he liked that Sennheiser. I think the number is the D330. Uh, you'll see him pictured with that microphone in the 80s. Uh, the mic that's on stage, if you watch the Purple Rain movie, you'll see that's the stage mic. He loved that Sennheiser mic. He, he always used that on his voice. Uh, I did a very standard miking technique when I worked with him because I came to him as a maintenance tech and I hadn't really done a lot of miking before. I learned a lot from Peggy McCreary and uh, I learned from what I had seen the engineers at, at Crosby, Stills and Nash's place do. So I did the just the standard miking techniques that were popular in the 80s. Um, Mark has some great questions, so I'm, I'm going to ask a, a couple more of these because they're, they're really good questions. Uh, did he have a certain uh, preference on EQs or preamps to use on his vocals and if so, which ones? He liked the sound of that custom-made Demidio console that was out at Sunset Sound. He liked it so much that he commissioned Frank Demidio to make a console for him as well. What was special about that um, console is that it used all discrete circuitry, meaning there were no integrated circuits, meaning that it sounded old school. That's what we would call it today because it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't have a lot of integrated circuits. It didn't sound crunchy the way modern, cheaper technology sound, sounds. It was wide open. It had a really high um, dynamic range, and it had a really broad frequency range as well. So he liked those big open circuits. You couldn't have, back in those days when you were cutting to vinyl, you couldn't have too much low end. And Prince didn't like that, you know, 808 sub-bass kind of low end. He liked a nice tight kick drum back in those days. Uh, that's what you needed. You needed to have a nice tight kick drum, and you, needed, you wanted your bass to be not too far into the basement in those days, because if you're cutting to vinyl, and you've got too much bass, it's going to, um, the, the cutting lathe is going to skip into the next groove. It's going to ruin your record. So you have to use a high-pass filter and roll off all that low end. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, uh, you have to learn how to make dance records and leave the subs to the actual DJ because you can't put it on that record, otherwise it'll skip. 
Um, so we liked a tight low end back in those days. Now, when late in his later years, when Prince had the opportunity to work with digital audio workstations, and when you could master for CDs and for downloading, uh, for streaming, then you can add more low end. But I don't know that his ear ever really changed. Uh, your listeners might find this interesting. I've been on panels now with Chris Brown and Dylan Dresdow and people who engineered with Prince in the 2000s, and they said he's. They they told me like how he liked to work. It was exactly the same as how we worked. When I saw Paisley Park Studios this past April, I went there for an event and saw the studios. They were the same. It was the same gear. His pedal board, he added a few new pedals to his guitar sound. It was the same. He still liked working with tape all through his life, and he used the same same equipment. Wow. Uh, next question I have here is from uh, my good friend Blue the Engineer. Uh, he engineered that Solange's album. Uh, you you got to check that I bad boy that out. That, that it's a man, classic album. Uh, so Blue's question is, uh, as an engineer, uh, you have a big impact on the overall sound of a song. Prince was a visionary, so I'm sure he had a clear picture of what he wanted a song to sound like. But what things sonically did he rely on you for? I could, I had a capacity that he didn't have, that he didn't need to have, which was I could dive deeply into the gear, and that meant that I could uh, arrange, I could rearrange the presets, and I could dial up what I wanted. So I knew I knew what he liked for reverbs and delays, and I, I knew what he liked having at his disposal, but I would always try to add something brand new, so that would be in the console, and I'd see whether or not he'd use it. So his the sends would already be routed, and the returns would be routed, and uh, I'd, have, I'd have just a variety of flavors for him to add. And if I added a new one and he liked it and he used it a lot, I'd keep that one in the rotation. And sometimes I would retire some of the older ones that we'd been using a lot, or I'd modify them. I'd modify the sounds of the plates or the chambers or the delays. Just, you know, the, that was my artistic input, is, is adding that flavor. Um, and then eventually, he gave me more and more responsibility. He would have me put up a song and, and get a mix on it, and which meant that I'm, I'm making these choices as to how, how I want it to sound, how I think he will like it to sound, to be fair. And um, so I, I, got, I got deeper into sculpting his sound as we, as we rolled forward, and he gave me more of that responsibility. Mm. And I have one more question from Blue from Lounge Studios uh, in New York. Uh, what type of input did he ask uh, ask for uh, during the recording and mixing process? Sometimes, and this is kind of surprising, he knew that it, it didn't take too long for him to discover that, one, I was a Prince fan and that I'd seen him live a number of times, and that, two, we came from the same musical street, as he used to call it. So it didn't take long. So that's when he started asking me what I thought about about parts or ideas, and I'd just tell him. Um, um, input sometimes I think he'd ask just to see if you were paying attention I saw him do that not just to me but to musicians and people who would drop by the studio he'd ask them a question and I thought I'll bet he doesn't really want to know the answer I think I wonder if sometimes if he's fishing just to see what you're listening to and what your musical value system is he'd ask about just a just about anything, about uh, lyrics or about sounds or blends or um, did you like it better with this or with that? You know, sometimes he'd, we'd put on a keyboard part, let's say, for instance, and then he'd change his mind and he'd work with a different timbre and he'd ask, you know, was it better before? Things like that. Because uh, over, over the course of um, 
I like to think of a, a great engineer, like like a black man's barber. Mm. Like your barber is your friend. Mm. Your barber gets you looking right. When you leave your barber, you're feeling good. And, mm. and that's kind of what, uh, when you sit down in that chair with the barber, it's more than just the look. Yeah. It's how that person makes you feel. And you you kind of become like a confidant. Yeah. Um, did you feel that towards the, you know, uh, in your time with Prince, that you guys became friends? And did you guys confide in each other personal things, maybe how you were feeling or things in your life that were good or, or bad? Or was it more just strictly about business? Uh, it was, I think the barber analogy is a great one. It was a little bit like that. I was very reluctant to cross that line. I was really scared of that line. I considered that kind of like a moat. I was afraid that if I did cross it, even at his, even if he waved me over, I was afraid that if I crossed that line, I would be of less value to him as an engineer. I was of value because I could be, I could be invisible. And that's what, that's what you need someone to be when you're working that intensely and you're working, and you're creating you're creating something de novo from the new. If you feel there's another mind in that room that is either competing with you or judging you, you don't have that freedom. So the great engineers become really good at being invisible and being the hands that facilitate the birth of this baby. Hmm. You just can't be there talking about, oh, look at his eyes, huh? <laughs> oh, that's one ugly baby. Like, you just can't do that. Yeah. You've got to let the baby be born. So I, we knew enough about each other that he could be comfortable with me. You're going to be uncomfortable if you're in a room and that person's a stranger to you. We occasionally would talk about, about things. And I remember once, um, I don't know, there was a conversation. I think Wendy and Lisa were in the room. And I said, my friend so-and-so says that, blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and he says, Susan, you don't have any friends. You work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh because it was right. <laughs> um, no, here's, here's, here's where he would be revealing. Here's where you could really tell what mood he was in. So he'd come in and he'd be all work. And the track would be taking place. You know, it's drums, bass, guitars, keys, vocals, backing vocals. This is the critical moment when you're creating a song because you don't know if it's going to work or not. You're doing a lot of decision-making really, really fast in his case. A lot of decision-making. And you often, more often than not, find yourself with something that, eh, it's just not that good. Um, it's okay, but it's just not that good. And to use a different analogy, let's say cooking. You know what you intend to make this dish, um, but then you're trying new flavors and you're trying new things. And when you taste it, the execution can be a long way from what you intended to do. So he would reveal what was on his mind when that record finally turned a corner and he knew now what it was. So in the final stages where we're putting on the final overdubs, that's when he'd get talkative. He'd talk about whatever was on his mind. It might be something with business and he would just start dropping cryptic hints like those people in Hollywood, they don't know this, da, 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 what do they know? And I would, my role would be to kind of listen and nod and chime in every now and then. And sometimes it would be about girlfriends or sometimes it would be about the band or about, about his plans for the future. Yeah, we're going to do this and it's going to be great. Sometimes he'd talk about his competition. He'd say something about Michael or about Madonna and you know what those guys do is... Da, da, da. I, I, my, I, now let's go back to the barber analogy. My job is to just let him talk. 
let him talk and I'll keep the conversation. Let him know that I'm listening, but let him talk. You know, um, when, when he passed away, uh, were you, were you here in, 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 in Boston? Mm -hmm. I was, I was literally collecting data from a participant in my laboratory. I've got a audio, audio research lab just up the street that Berkeley has allowed me to use this space. And I had a participant there and I'm collecting my auditory brainstem response data. And, uh, I had my phone and I got a text message from Nick Balkan in our media relations office, and he said, the phones are kind of blowing up here. I suppose you've heard Prince just passed away. And I hadn't heard. Um, so I, I came running over here, and then the next 48 hours I did a lot of interviews and, and spoke with the band as well. We had a conference call with The Revolution and Sheila E. and Gilbert and Alan Leeds, and we're all talking about well, there was the the shock wave was tremendous. It was like after a, an earthquake. Um, we were all talking about what we were going to do. There wasn't anything we could do except just all come together. So we flew out to um, Minneapolis, and there was a we got together in the bar of the Lowe's Hotel across from First Avenue in Minneapolis, and we just kept that bar open all night. And <clears throat> people came in and out. By people, I mean people who had worked for him. And we had a microphone set up on the table, and we just told Prince stories. Wow. That was all we could do. You know, we, we, we were all shocked, of course. We, the, the worst part, the absolute worst part, was knowing that he suffered in the last few years of his life. And knowing that um, he didn't let people know the extent to which he was in pain. I've heard from others who've worked worked with him or saw him in the last year of his life and <clears throat> they said it was clear this is an uh, this is a, a man in terrible physical pain and for whatever reason he chose not to get the surgery the medical intervention that would have alleviated that pain that religion might have been that, that reason might have been religious it might have been personal i don't know what the reason was a smart man like that knows what he's doing he decided not to, and instead he took pain medication to, so that he could live with the pain, and it was that pain medication that killed him. In the years that I knew him, and I can't imagine that this changed afterward, Prince did not like altered states. He, we used to joke that he would get drunk on a Coca-Cola, because <laughs> guy... <laughs> He, he just did. He he didn't like even the idea of drugs. He he didn't like it. Um, he didn't take drugs to get high. He took drugs to cover up um, or to help him live with terrible, terrible pain. And he had a small body, and it was too much for him. If you could uh, have a, a conversation with him, uh, and today, and, and you could say, you know, one sentence to him now, what would that sentence be? Oh. I'm so long-winded. The idea of one sentence is kind of hard. I suppose, man, I'd try to find the words that would push him to get medical intervention for his pain and, and not live with it. I, have, I don't know what the reasoning is, so maybe the one sentence wouldn't even be a sentence, maybe it would be a question. Why won't you get help to fix this problem? I, I would... I don't know that the answer would do anything, but I, I, I would love to say something, anything that could have helped him to recognize modern medicine is there. 
It's there for you. Maybe, <clears throat> pardon me, maybe it was his religious beliefs. Maybe uh, he thought it was God's way that wanting him to suffer. But maybe medical intervention is God's way. You know, I don't know. And you are now, uh, we're here in Boston at, at Berklee School of Music. And, and so what are you doing now? So I, um, I, I was in the music business after Prince from 88 till, until 2000. I engineered and mixed and I produced records. In 1998, I had a hit record as a producer with Bare Naked Ladies. And back in those days when we sold records, it uh, generated enough money that I could leave the music business. And so I entered college as a freshman in the year 2000. At the University of Minnesota, I got a dual degree, one in uh, kind of a dual degree in psychology and go in neuroscience. Gophers. Yeah, the Gophers, <laughs> the Golden Gophers. Uh, then I went up to McGill and uh, in Montreal, and I did my PhD work in the laboratory of Daniel Levitin, who wrote "This Is Your Brain on Music." After I earned my PhD in 2008, I came here to Berkeley. So here at Berkeley, I t- I'm in the Department of Music Production and Engineering, but I teach in two departments. I teach here. In MP&E, I teach uh, advanced record production and analog tape because the kids love the analog tape. And then in liberal arts, I teach music cognition and psychoacoustics. What inspired you to go back to school? Well, I had never even finished high school, so I'd always thought, well, from my 30s and onward, I had thought that I would enjoy the work of a scientist, and I would enjoy... Um, looking at data and exploring a research question about the natural world. I thought I would really like that lifestyle. And it turns out I'm right. I I love it. What I wasn't prepared for was how creative it is. This is some of the most creative work I have ever done in my life. And being an engineering science type mind, uh, for, for that type of mind, designing experiments to test research questions is as close as we'll come to having like our solo record. This is my art now. So before I was always facilitating the vision of other people, this, making a Prince record, making a Bare Naked Ladies record or a Gegita record. Now I'm facilitating my vision, my ideas. So it's, it's really thrilling and really rewarding. There's no money and there's no fame. Uh, but the the satisfaction of the work is is incredible. So I started our conversation talking about what a brain does when it daydreams, and in my 30s I began recognizing, oh my goodness, I'm not fantasizing about music anymore. I'm fantasizing about the natural world, and uh, specifically the brains of other organisms, the consciousness in non-human animals, what it's like. And my fantasies started getting stronger and stronger. And that told me, wow, if I keep going, I'm going to have to do what I did when I got into the music business. I'm going to have to put my body in the place where my mind increasingly is. And when I was young, my mind was on music. But when I got older, my mind started getting to it in a different place. That's what it wanted to do. That's what it was telling me. This is what I want. And being you know, selfish, I went after what I wanted. From doing this podcast, I am just a fan of music. What advice do you have, in particular for engineers in general, but also for female engineers in your field? Um, what has kept you, propelled you to be where you are today? With it, whether it's personality or, or work ethic or... I was asked this question just recently. A young woman asked me this question at Ableton's Loop event in Berlin. That was last weekend. And, um, you know, I, I've got to be completely honest. I don't think I have anything 
special going on other than I, I know I've got a decent high, a decently high intelligence, which a lot of people do. Uh, I think uh, I've got ambition and drive also, which a lot of people have. But what allowed those to then become a career included, um, I was in the right place. I was in Hollywood. Now, it's important for young engineers to recognize you can be an engineer anywhere that there's music, and there's music everywhere in the world. You can take a field recorder into the rainforest and be an engineer if you want to. You can be an engineer anywhere. But if you want to make records at the highest level and sell records, you need to be in New York or Los Angeles or London. You need to be where the music industry is. So I was there. Uh, that was one thing. Another thing was that I had something unusual about me. I was a woman. Now, being a woman meant that there were a lot of gigs that I would never even be considered for. But it also meant to other people, I was something special. I got my gig with Prince, not because I was a woman, but it sure as hell helped. I think I maybe kept my gig with him because I was female. So you have to figure out what it is you've got going on that is uh, your... I guess value added, I think is what they, they call it. So I was in the right place. I was an unusual profile. I had the ambition and I had the ability. I could actually do this. I had the focus and the self-discipline that it takes. Uh, those are personality traits. To be successful in the sciences is the same thing as in the music business. You have to be able to focus and you have to be self-disciplined to be able to take those sacrifices. I also had a definition of success that put the bar pretty low, was actually attainable. So some people, their idea or their definition of success includes, well, I want to be a millionaire, and I want to have a mansion, and I want to have you know the best spouse, and I want to have the best kids, and then I want to work, oh, I don't know, 40 hours a week would be nice because I like to travel a lot. And I, <laughs> That's really hard to get. My definition of success did not include a spouse or children, so I was okay with this not yielding a personal life. And it, it included just, I just want to be where records are being made. I want to, I want to contribute to records being made. I, didn't, uh, I knew that the future was a big place and that I couldn't see it all from here, so I didn't bother trying to say or trying to picture something that was out there in the fog and then finding it. I just knew if I just get a little deeper into the fog... I'll be okay. Mm. So when you set the bar low enough that you can actually attain it, that gives you confidence to move the bar a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. So with every time I uh, did actually attain something, I remember thinking, this is great. Now the next thing I'd like to get is this. And I added these um, accomplishments in series rather than in parallel, and I was okay with what I couldn't have. I accepted that. I, I think those are some of the traits or characteristics that go into having success. You have to be in the right place, and you have to have really good instincts for what's coming. There are many people who make the mistake of they back the wrong horse. They, they don't understand music and society well enough to know what's coming. When I worked for Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I was prescient enough to know that Prince was the right horse to bet on, that this is going to be huge. That was my instinct. I didn't know for sure. But I also was aware that Crosby, Stills, and Nash, as big as they had been, were not going to continue to have that level, the level of success they had had in the 60s and the 70s, that they were on their way down in terms of record sales, and this young guy was on his way up. So you have to have that as well. That helps in the business. 
Well, Susan, I, I want to say thank you so much uh, for just sitting down with me. You're so nice. Oh, thank you. And, and even so nice in email. Oh, thank you. Like you gave me the map. <laughs> I think that's nice. So so pleasant. I'm, thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you've contributed to, to music. I, I, I'm a big fan of the arts, you thank know, you. and the whole point of the podcast is to try to highlight people that just do the just do the work and put music first. And, you know, thank you so much for what you've contributed to popular culture. Thank you so you know? much. I, I'm really thrilled to be part of this podcast. I like the, where you're going with it. And I will say it again. I think you are, um, I think you're, I think you have an extraordinary talent. I think you're an exceptional journalist. And I can say this, I feel a little bit confident saying it, because I've been interviewed a lot. And, and I kind of know, uh, since Prince passed, I kind of know a little bit how this goes. I think you've got a, I think you've got a gift, and you need, to, you need to keep doing this. I think you're going to make a really important contribution. Coming from you, that means a lot. <laughs> you know. Thank so, you. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're the best. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I appreciate your attention. Take care. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recording. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.